This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I am Amit Ghosh, Professor of Medicine at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. The topic for today's discussion is using artificial intelligence to combat COVID. Today, we are joined by Dr. Thomas Caulfield, Associate Professor of Neurosciences at Mayo Clinic in Florida, who has a research background in biochemistry, medicinal chemistry, biophysics, computational modeling, and in silico drug studies. His longtime focus is in areas related to protein modeling and new drugs, such as structural studies of biomolecular targets, assessment of druggability, drug discovery, and also de novo design. So we are speaking with an extremely unique scientist. Welcome, Dr. Caulfield. Uh, thank you, Dr. Gough. So COVID has posed us a lot of challenges, but has also posed us a lot of opportunities. And here with us is Dr. Caulfield, who has used his long-term research training with, and has engaged in a collaboration with several centers over the US to try to find out some treatment of COVID. As you know, we have struggled with numerous medications, numerous studies and papers have been published. But today we are going to discuss a very unique process of using artificial intelligence for drug discovery using simulation. Dr. Caulfields was the lead author in a seminal article which was published on 23rd of May, 2021 in Biomolecules. And that present discussion is going to be based on the research that he and his colleagues have done. Dr. Caulfield, I would like to ask that in defense against new and emerging infections, how can we leverage this field of artificial intelligence and platform technologies to provide us with tools that will enable us to study, innovate, and potentially find some cure for these new emerging viruses? That's a great question that I think is a has a large umbrella of areas of research that are involved. Mayo has a collaboration with the company Enference in Boston, and they've been able to do contextual-based AI compilation of, of all the patient health data to associate different correlations that would be hard to understand or find without the use of the power of AI. In my instance, what I've, I've been trying to do is work on small molecule rather than a vaccine-based approach to study the structures of key enzymes and proteins that are involved in COVID progression. And so we have looked at receptor binding, which, uh, you know, everyone talks about the ACE2 receptor with that, but we've also looked at the viral en entry into the cell, which involves uh, other enzymes like Tempris2 and various cathepsins. And then we look at the translation and replication cycle of COVID once it's in the cell through enzymes like MPRO, which is is from the viral genome. So it, it hijacks the host cell's DNA to replicate itself so that it could then go on and assemble and bud and release and, and proliferate to infect other cells. So what our lab wanted to do was look at the structural data that was available for multiple different proteins that COVID uses opportunistically and see if we could find a milieu of, of different compounds and we looked at both FDA approved drugs, but also new chemical entities. And in doing that, we were able to screen over 30 million different new chemical entities on all of these different targets. And then 
using the resources that you mentioned and that these other uh, places like Harvard with uh, Dr. Uh, Shrek Zhang, who does bioengineering and he can do organ on a chip. So he can make little mimics of the different human organs on a biological microchip. So he can do what we call lung on a chip. He can do uh, gut on a chip for GI on a chip. And he can also do heart on a chip. So cardio on a chip. And he can link these different circuits together. He can even include a, a liver to see what the metabolism of our drug is when, once it's administered to this system and see how the drug affects his representation of the COVID in, infected system using that as a way to test safety and efficacy of these new chemical entities. We also collaborated with the University of California at Riverside with uh, Dr. Kareem LaRoche and Dr. Juliet Morrison, and they have a nice BSL-3 facility there and also some COVID mice models. So we're going to be able to test these compounds in mice. But initially, we also worked with Dr. Hideki Ibahara up in Rochester, Minnesota, where you guys have a, a BSL-3 facility as well. And we were able to test these compounds in live virus and screen to see, we had designed compounds specifically for these different targets, for Tempers 2 or for the spike protein or for MPRO. And then we were able to screen and see whether or not the compound is having an effect in the way that we think it would be. We were able to do a very variety of controls of positives and negatives. And then the, the feedback of that information comes into our system that allows us to further develop and design those with an adaptive series of data layers. And I did have a slide for that. I realize this is a podcast, but I do have a couple slides I could share that kind of illustrate because there is an interesting thing we do with some different algorithms that allow us to study. The important thing about what we do with these enzymes is we study their dynamic behavior rather than the static structure that is revealed from crystallography. So crystallography is a common technique that when you take biochemistry or even basic biology, you learn about Watson and Crick and how they were working to elucidate the structure of the double helix. And that method's been applied to where we have hundreds of thousands of, of crystal structures for proteins and small molecules and ribonucleic structures. And so there are crystal structures available for many of these enzymes that we're studying, like Tempris 2. And I'm working with Dr. Yvette Rudisky here in uh, Jacksonville. She's a crystallographer. And she's been making protein crystals for Tempris too, so that we can co-crystallize that with the different drugs that we're designing to see how the structure of that is together. So if I could share a slide or two with you, I'd show you some of the uh, things we've done. This is amazing. It, it looks like absolutely space age, Star Wars stuff. And this is what uh, is so exciting. Before you initiate on this complex design of your experiment, which has so many steps, as you said, entry, the viral entry level, the fusion level, a late fusion level, translation level, from your experience, are different pathogens, are they going to behave differently or they're going to have the same common pathway? I understand that the SARS-ACE receptor is unique for SARS-CoV-2. Do you have to wait for a virologist or somebody to tell you that these are the paths or the vaccinologist or somebody to direct so that you can direct your experiment to these subunits? I'm actually working with a couple of different infectious disease experts and virologists. So I'll mention Dr. Dervusala down here. He's the chair for infectious disease. Him and Prakash, they're working on like a pan therapy for, for all coronaviruses. I'm also working on a pan coronavirus therapy based on a protein called protein E that's an envelope protein with uh, Dr. Borad Matish, who's uh, at Mayo in Arizona. And uh, we've identified some interesting cryo-EM based. So cryogenic EM is a, an electron micrographic uh, method that's similar to x-ray crystallography, and it gives you a, 
different conformations of the structure than you might get from an X-ray. And that the cryo-EM is really great for these uh, proteins that are bound in the membrane. So normally for your audience, a soluble protein is a protein that's free-floating kind of in the cytosol, it's excreted and, and allowed to move to its destination. But a lot of receptors and other proteins are stuck in the membrane where they have a function they have to do. And so protein E is one of these proteins that's in a membrane. And Matish identified this as a viable target for coronaviruses. So we're looking to see if we can alter that one, uh, modulate its behavior to inhibit coronaviruses. And, and, and Dr. Durvasala's lab has some other ideas too. I won't go into the details of all their various projects. But what I was talking about was that apart from the membrane the receptors, which could be different for different viruses at the entry point, the other subsequent processes when it comes to virus, and I'm talking about an RNA virus. Oh, uh, sure, sure. You think about, would you postulate that the journey of replication and proliferation and assembly and other things would be similar so that you can save time with your research done, you know, okay, these are the, we have created this molecules, the crystallographic studies have been there, or do you think Definitely, yep. definitely, there'll be, there'll be some lessons learned there that could be applied for sure. There's going to be different isoforms of these proteins that are unique to the different viruses and, and the, the different pathways, but for sure, there'll be lessons learned there that could be applied, I think, in general. Yeah. So in your paper, you mentioned the process of silicon screening. For most of our audience, this is a new term. So could you <laughs> describe what is silicon screening? Yeah, so that's the virtual library generation. The cool thing about the, the crystallography data, like if you think of the Watson-Crick structure for DNA, and people have seen these three-dimensional models that, you know, even when you take your chemistry class, well, that can be represented digitally inside a computer with coordinates that correspond to like X, Y, and Z. And it, it becomes a giant table that represents the connectivity of the different atoms, the kinds of those different atoms, the strength of the interactions of those different atoms, and all of that representation will have different forces that are related to the physics of how they behave. And then we study the behavior of that motion because nothing is a static structure. We're sitting here breathing and moving around and, and throughout the course of a day, there's a million things we do. And within every cell, there's thousands of processes happening every second. Most of these processes are happening on the femtosecond to nanosecond timescale which means if you were to take a second and divide it into a billion pieces, there's phenomenal amounts of things happening every billionth of a second. And so we want to study those changes so that those atoms that are in that table move around so that that information moves and changes. And we want to study how we can manipulate that to change the way the enzyme's working. And so what we do is we, we couple that information with there's millions of known compounds that come from either natural products, which is a rich source of data on compounds that come from nature, but there's also chemical synthesis compounds that have been created over the history of humanity that number in the millions. When making a, a synthetic compound, there may be 13 or 14 steps to get to the final product. Then there might be what we call addicts, and addicts are, are various offshoots of those chemicals along the way. And they're discarded as not useful, but they might be useful for a future project. So those might be a starting point for another screening. So we're able to digitize all that information on all those compounds and virtually bring in the compound with the target, which is a protein or it could be a nucleic acid. But typically, you know, most of the things are proteins we're studying. And the proteins are folded up into a specific shape and they're moving around, wiggling and jiggling is what uh, Richard Feynman, the physicist, called it. And we want to study the aberrant behavior. I also work with the Center for Individualized Medicine on variants of uncertain significance. So people get their genome sequenced, 
And it turns out they've got, and we'll call it a mutation, that's a colloquial term, but their genetic sequence is a little bit different. So how's that compared to the, what we expect in the wild type? So we can study the behavior of that enzyme's movement compared to what's considered the wild type, the normal isoform versus the patient's isoform, see if that's causing any effect. So that's an example too. But then we can take that information and we can screen these small molecules with it. And that's the in silico screening. And we want to see if the small molecule changes the way the protein behaves. And we might want to tamp it down, which would be inhibiting the enzyme's activity, like turning down its activity. We might want to amp it up and activate it. In the case of uh, Parkinson's disease, there's a protein I've worked on called Parkin, not a very creative name. And the Parkin protein is the E3 ubiquitin ligase. And what it does is the ligases bring two molecules together and fuse them. In this case, it creates a thing called a thioester bond. So there's a sulfur atom that connects to another atom that is bringing in a ubiquitin. And the ubiquitin is a 76 amino acid protein that's very hydrophobic shaped like a ball. That tags something that tells the body, oh, it's time to send this to the trash can and recycle it. The body has its own trash can through the proteasome system to recycle things. So that otherwise your cell would just build up a lot of junk as it's doing its processes. So the cell is continuously building things and degrading things. And in the course of Parkinson's disease, these patients have an issue with mitophagy. And mitophagy is their breakdown of the mitochondria. So you, you, your body has mitochondria in it. You've learned in biology that help provide energy for the cell. And in, in these Parkinson's disease affected patients, they have sick mitochondria that aren't doing what they need to be doing. So they would get shuttled off for degradation. And in that scenario, Parkin should come in and bring in these ubiquitin chains and attach it to the adapter proteins on the surface of the mitochondria that send it off to the lysosome to be degraded, but it's not getting, it's not happening. So that protein needs to be activated. And so for that, we did, we did a project where we screened small molecules that would come in and bind with Parkin to help activate it and make it more active so that it would go do that process. So it might be we want to inhibit, like with COVID, we want to inhibit, but other cases, maybe with a neurodegenerative process, we want to activate the process. It's almost like searching for a needle in the haystack. I mean, you start with 30 million and you bombard your crystallographic, uh, those proteins with 30 million of these proteins. And it looks like even the proteins, when they interact with your final molecule, it changes with the ligands and others. It could probably change its shape. It would change its character after the fusion. So it's not just a receptor just fitting into a molecule, but it could be transformed, if I'm understanding right, Yes, and yeah, that, yeah. And, and that would be like the induced fit. Uh, yeah, everybody, well, not everybody, but a lot of people have heard of this induced fit mechanism where when the ligand binds, the enzyme or the substrate binds, the enzyme has a, a change that occurs. And we can actually study that using simulations. So we use these molecular dynamic simulations. And then one of the things my lab pioneered in the 2000s was algorithms to enhance the rate at which we can do these simulations because the rate limiting step for us is not the enzymatic step, but the computer power. Now the computer power is getting really amazing. So we're getting to where that's not a, a hurdle. And we have these GPU computers and uh, you know the quantum computers are coming. And so we're able to use, but we still, these algorithms are great because the process, like uh, mesotrypsin is an enzyme I study for Dr. Radisky. And that process occurs on the scale of microseconds. Those calculations we do are on the order of a femtosecond. So you need, a billion calculations to get a nanosecond. So you'd need a thousand more to get a microsecond. So you need thousands of billions of calculations to get the proper data. So we use these advanced algorithms to try and enhance the study of the change of the shape. And then what we do is like you said, 
after we've identified a compound that binds, how does that compound persist? Will it stay on there or does it fall off? So we do simulations of these compounds on the enzyme to see if it has staying power. And that kind of is like roughly correlates to what we expect with kinetics, which is a field of studying how well the drug binds, sure. what's its affinity. Yep. After you did that, you figured out from your paper, I was reading about 250, 350 high value compounds, both new and FDA approved. And did you run all of them for in vivo or you just selected a small group? Yeah, we randomly selected 350. I, I wish we could have done 350. So the funding is the limit there. So we randomly selected 30. And we tested all 30 of those with Hideki's lab in Rochester. And we tested all 30, 30 of those with Dr. Zhang at Harvard for the safety profile. And these were all new chemical entities. None of these were an FDA approved drug. We wanted to see if we could find some new compounds that might be value added. We could always combine those later with an FDA compound to see if there's an effect. And these molecules were acting at different levels? Yeah. Our benchmark was to compare them to remdesivir. So we had some that were as good as remdesivir or maybe better based on the safety profile. So what is happening to that research now? COVID is settling down, but it's still pretty, yeah. everybody's still insecure. It's still there. People are still deciding not to get vaccinated. So we have to have alternative ways of supporting them should they get into a crisis and should we have to admit them. And right now we have steroids, we have remdesivir, we have the monoclonal prior to that, which is an outpatient thing. But looks like this is a, such a unique concept using AI. You and your team have created a completely different platform thinking. I remember a year and a half ago, I've done numerous podcasts and we were talking about how the pandemic evolves, how to take precautions, all the epidemiology stuff, uh, preventive stuff. And then came the vaccine couldn't be made in earlier than three or four years. That proved a myth and a different kind of medication. I can see your team lurking around thinking about why don't we do AI? It's a brilliant thought process, which was just not there. And for new knowledge, sometimes what we don't know, we don't know. It's like a big blind spot. And your work actually puts a lot of light on the blind spot. So if ever this were to happen, somebody would lift a phone and say, let's call Thomas right away. Uh, well, that's, sort, that's sort of what happened. I wasn't working on COVID and suddenly uh, several people from the task force and Dr. Freeman, they came to me and, and said, uh, let's put your talent on this and all hands on deck. We were ready to go. So that's amazing. This is innovation at a very different level. It's very incremental. It's taking our thought process to a very different stage. You have a team, you can run these kind of molecules, you can run this kind of simulation, but here's a new virus. How do we challenge and how do we provide the information to you? How long does it take? I guess the thing holding us back is funding. So we're waiting for NIH funding. If we secure the NIH funding, we'll, we'll forge ahead because we think coronaviruses in general, they're not going away. And, and so the lessons learned from this will be broadly applicable. I'm working with other virologists that feel like, you know, emerging diseases is a big area that we need to be concerned about. So Dr. Durvasala and Kareem LaRoche and Dr. Juliet Morrison all have emerging viruses that they're interested in working on. So, so we can apply these methods to their, their So the their other thing that you did mention is collaboration. We have some knowledge in Mayo. There are other expertise in California, in Harvard. So is it something that we need to do in peacetime? And I, by peacetime, I mean when there is not a pandemic going, is creating this collaboration, likeness of mind and power from different institutions, which are ready to jump in in any crisis mode. Yes, it'll always come who's going to fund it. Did that help your study? 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. As amazing as Mayo Clinic is, there's always going to be some resources at other institutions that just don't exist here yet. So in the case of Dr. Zhang, he's doing some really amazing things that we were able to tap into that we wouldn't otherwise be able to do. We already had Dr. Hideki Ibahara here, so he could do the live virus screening on site, but the mice models are over in the University of California. So we'll be able to do that there when the time comes. The program officer is very enthusiastic. So I think, I think it's not an issue of if we'll get funding, but when we'll get funding, and then we'll just keep moving that, that ball forward. So one of the questions which comes up are these frequent mutations. You've had right now Delta and you've, all the Greek alphabets have been used for mutations. Does your study show that the effect of your modeling or the result of the modeling would not be affected regardless of what the mutations are? Right now, we haven't changed our treatment, at least the clinical treatment, the way we approach these patients. What we are talking about, the effect of vaccination on these mutations, we are not worried. We are quite certain that the vaccination will protect us regardless of the mutation. But is that a factor when you're changing the protein structure, the membrane structure? Would that factor in or do you think that's not a big problem? No, that's a, that's a great question. And absolutely. So we, we have a model for the spike protein and how it pairs up with the ACE receptor. So we, can, we were actually able to go in and, and visually examine where the different variants are occurring. We have a collaborator at DARPA that, that sends us an update on new and recent uh, variants that are popping up. And what we can scan on the surface of, of the structure to see if it's going to be in a spot where we think it'd be interfering with, with how the vaccine would be working. But the thing is, we can, we can rapidly model that change in our, our, our structure, do a simulation, repeat some of the uh, screening on that, that change that occurs. We can also study how the, the variant uh, affects the confirmation of the enzyme itself. You know, like I said earlier, with the Center for Individualized Medicine, we study variants for all kinds of uh, rare diseases and, and mutations that patients come in and they get their genome sequenced because they're not matching up with the physician's expectation. They have presentation of, of disease that doesn't match what they're expecting. So they get referred to a clinical genomicist who goes through and, and sends them over. Part of what we do is then see if we can find a structural reason for that. But, but likewise with the virus here, when we study, there could be eventually variants that we observe in, with mPro, right? Which is the, the virus protein for replication. So that could be something we could study as well. Fortunately, it's only been uh, the spike protein that we're seeing these issues. But yeah, we were able to model that. And that's, that's something we can rapidly do and, and integrate into, see if it affects the way we expect the compounds that are binding to work. So then there's a challenge of actually having a new drug running into the different phase trials, yeah. safety, efficacy, and all that stuff. Under the emergency authorization, they were able to push the vaccinations pretty fast. But I suspect that there could still be significant delay from the fact that you know from your in vitro and in vivo studies to the fact that it gets uh, into some kind of drug design, getting and trying to find out the safety data and all that. It could still take months to years. Absolutely. Yeah. The preclinical hurdle. And then there's the so-called valley of death when you're trying to get into a clinical trial, an IND from the development of your initial finding. And that's not going to go away just because it's COVID. I guess the thing is, if we come up with a pan-therapeutic item, that's kind of like a, 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 you know, malaria, there's drugs for malaria. I don't want to mention that because malaria kind of put a bad stink on COVID, but, but there are well-known malaria drugs that have been around forever. So if we could come up with something like that for coronaviruses, that in the future, it might just be a prophylactic that you give to uh, 
people that are going to be working in areas where there's an outbreak or something like that to help them. It might not be something that you're giving. Now, oncology, when, the, when I went to my medical school and residency, which was a while ago, and oncology now is different. Genomics, drug delivery, creating new targeted drugs. In fact, the way lung cancers are classified now is so different from what we studied, which only four types of lung cancers, and now there could be 50 types, depending on the receptors. And the process of drug delivery to treat like CML, chronic myeloid leukemia, or the new form of lung cancers, have they followed the same route of discovery as you are involved in, or that process is different? And you have a genomic study, you have a targeted, uh, you know, a targeted receptor or a gene or something, and they are basically creating these molecules in the lab. So these are so-called designer drugs which mm -hmm. have created, and they have been superbly effective. They have changed the entire spectrum of some of these cancers. Yeah, I would say that's probably a different process for sure. You know, I'm not an expert in all these areas. I imagine there's a way for them to, to bring AI into that for sure. But, you know, I'm focused really on the small molecule aspect of it. Now, I do get to work with a lot of cancer people who sometimes they're looking to do some sort of combination therapy where they've got an existing drug that works really well, but there's also chance of the cancer coming back and relapsing. So they're looking for multiple pathways to block out. And I will work with them on a way to see if there's a way to design a, a, a one-two punch for multiple pathways. One thing my lab's been forking off into is uh, developing Protax. So we've been working on Protax. Again, that's hijacking the, the body system to send the bad protein that you don't want. For people that don't know, Protax is a way of uh, using the proteasome to recycle these targeted proteins that you've identified as the culprits to go off and, and be shuttled off for recycling. So the, the Protax will have a compound that has some affinity for the protein you're going after. And then the warhead on the Protax will say, let's bring in a, a ubiquitin ligase to, to degrade it. It's a really cool technique, pretty widely known now. And there's several labs um, working with to use uh, Protex as an, another approach to, you know, taking a small molecule a little bit further than the traditional inhibition route. The process are using mechanisms which are there for a reason. And when we are trying to alter these processes, I can understand the virus is a bad thing. So the ph pharmacodynamics is important to understand how the medicine is reacting with the virus. How is it reacting with the body? Is there any unintended consequences which you can predict from AI? You're able to predict a lot of these interactions, but are you able to predict some of the unintended, maybe bad consequences without doing the studies in vivo, in vitro studies from AI? Yeah, that, 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 that's a great question too. So with Dr. Copeland, I worked on a target called SCD1, sterile CoA desaturase 1. And that's involved in ER stress. So in that case, the protein is desaturating fats in the ER. And so it's basically, if, if you go back to studying your, your basic bio, there's these double bonds in the fat that could be a single bond. And that affects the way the fats are, are in the, the ER. And it, if you inhibit it, you can make the ER more rigid. So it's, it's not as loose. And that will trigger cell death in that cell and say, I, I, there's something wrong with me. I need to be aborted. So that's a great target for renal cell carcinoma, which is, he found that was highly upregulated in renal, him and Dr. Tum were studying that. So that was their first discovery was MPTX2, which is a neuronal pentraxin that should not be overexpressed in uh, renal cell carcinoma, uh, renal, uh, renal cells is overexpressed in renal cell carcinoma. 
along with SCD1. We're working on MPTX2 now, but we went after SCD1 off-target effects. So we that's the answer to your question is yes, there's off-target effects. So it turns out when you inhibit SCD1, there's other receptors that are getting hit that can cause one of the symptoms you can get is dry eye, which is if you have cancer, I, I feel like you're probably okay with dealing with dry eye. <laughs> but yeah. uh, also it, it causes temporarily, as long as you're taking the drug, it inhibits spermatogenesis in males. So who knows, maybe it's a male fertility drug then in that scenario. But yeah, there are scenarios where, where the compounds will have an off-target effect that's undesirable. That's a case where the off-target effect is mild, so it's not so bad. But there are other cases where if you go pretty high, it's it's not not such a great thing. So we try and get the concentration, and that 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 means the dose that the patient would take as low as possible. If we can get things down to like one nanomolar, then the odds of it having um, negative side effects becomes diminished. Whereas if you need, and so nanomolar is the concentration that you need to have the molarity at a certain amount per volume. I won't get into the chemistry of that for your audience, but they should know the word nano means oh, yeah. small stuff. So very small amount. Oh, that's amazing. Whenever I talk with a scientist like you, it brings hope. And one of the things which we try to bring to our patients, not only in Mayo Clinic, but every hospital in the world is they don't want to hear that nothing else can be done. Nothing else is there, but it's not only COVID, but your research, Dr. Caulfield, is, embraces so many different areas from Parkinsonisms to a lot of these uh, neurodegenerative disorders and tumors and other things. So as long as there are scientists like you who are slogging away and working away and collaborating and creating these exciting new knowledge streams, there is always hope for patients. There's always hope for us. And hopefully one of these drugs will be modified, studied, will go through the whole, as you said, you used the word. Uh, valley of death. That's valley just, of it's, death. It's and so hard. It's so hard to get a, a drug to through IND, right. Maybe right? some of them yeah. will come gasping and, and make it the finish line, and then that will have it to the patients. So I'm very optimistic. Whenever I see Dr. Thomas Caulfield, I'll know there's hope. So thank you very much. We have been talking about using artificial intelligence to combat COVID, and you just had Dr. Thomas Caulfield uh, mention some new strategies and techniques that uh, Mayo and other uh, institutions around the country are adopting to understand and study COVID and other illnesses. And so thank you very much for your time, ladies and gentlemen. If you have enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks and podcasts, please subscribe, stay healthy, and we'll see you back next week.